Well, if you really want to do something important with your day, it's time to wake and bake. Captain Hooter, put it down for him. John Sally out. It's Captain Hooter. Welcome back. Great to see you back here in the Hooterverse. Hey, listen, I'm just finishing up with a little bit of morning meditation. Shh, be quiet. Come in and let me show you how this thing works. It's very cool. So this is called trip, and it is a total trip. Take a couple puffs off your joint, sit back, and watch this for a couple of minutes.
dude, I don't know about you guys, but after all that meditation, I'm ready to go back to bed. <laughs> no, can't go back to bed. We're coming in here to do an interview. And today, we have an opportunity to go and talk with Mila, the hash queen. This is going to be awesome. Check this out. Good morning, everyone. Captain Huda here once again, high and alive, delighted today to be here with the hash queen, Mila Janssen, one of the most incredible women I've ever met, especially here in our cannabis world. And uh, she's here to spend a little time with us this morning and uh, uh, have a little proper wake and bake. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. I'm very honored to be here with you on this lovely program. Will you, with your beautiful background, it looks amazing. Anyway, let's go. I wish this. I wish this was my real background, and I had it here all the time. And this, uh, yeah, um, one can dream. And I'll, I'll just, uh, in, I'll leave it at that. Um, I, our market here, and the people that are going to be watching this show primarily are going to be from the United States and from Canada. And I know these are locations where you are very well known, but not quite as well known as you are here in Europe. And there's, uh, uh, I, I talked to like three people the other day and, and two out of the three knew who you were, but the other one, you know, again, the, the amount of hash that was available was not nearly as prevalent as it is here. For the people that don't know who you are or don't know, the hash queen. Can you just give us the quick elevator uh, story about who the hash queen is? Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I'm uh, Mila, and uh, I used to live in India for a long time. And when I and over there in India and Afghanistan and Pakistan, I saw people making hash. So when I moved back to Amsterdam in '88 where I'd lived before, but I moved back there. Um, I didn't like, uh, suddenly the whole city was full of coffee shops selling weed. I tried weed, but after 20 years of smoking ash, the weed never really did it for me. And uh, as I'd seen how to make the hash, and as I happened to be growing to support my four children, uh, I had plenty of material and the opportunity, and I started making my own hash, like I'd seen it done in Afghanistan over a flat screen. One night, I'm standing in front of my clothes dryer where the clothes tumble around in the drum, and I suddenly thought, man, that's what I'm doing with those leaves, trying to get the uh, trichomes to fall off. So the next day, we got a secondhand dryer, we ripped out the heating system and we just tied a screen around the drum of the dryer and turned it on, put in some material, turned it on, and lo and behold, the crystals fell through the screen down to the bottom. Uh, for some reason, we called it the pollinator, although it's got little to do with pollinating. But anyway, that's its name. And I didn't even realize at that moment that even though people had been making hash for thousands of years, it had always been a manual job. And actually this little pollinator of mine was the first mechanical system to separate the trichomes from all the rest of the plant material. 
thereby giving you the possibility to make hash, which is usually just pressed together trichomes. And so we made the first one and then the second one, and then we started going to grow shops and I loved what I saw and I ordered them. And that was 28 years ago and I'm still making these things. <laughs> you know, and, and in addition to the pollinator, you also uh, uh, evolved into the isolator, correct? And then I believe there's the, the bubbleator. So the isolator and the bubbleator work on uh, ice cold water. And when the plant material is submerged in this ice cold water, all the crystals get hard like glass. And any kind of movement, either in your bags or in the little washing machine, will knock off those crystals easy as pie. After all, the washing machine is an expert at cleaning stuff. And for the washing machine, these trichomes just have to go. They end up in the runoff water, which you run through some different size screen bags and low presto, there is all your trichomes. You have to let them dry, press them up and smoke them. <laughs> Voila, there it is. You know, I, I loved your book, How I Became the Hash Queen. And the story, your story of, uh, you know, first of all, starting here in, in Amsterdam and in 1968, and I've seen some photos of you in 1968, and you had a really fantastic little boutique going on. And you were literally on the cutting edge of fashion, hippie. You were hippie at the top of the hippie pyramid, actually, there in Amsterdam in 68, eh? We were the first uh, boutique that actually sold many skirts. I mean, you could cut off your own skirt, but we actually sold many skirts. <laughs> that was a and great, that... but it was a lot of hard work because every Saturday we'd be sold out. We were very popular. And those were also the days when Timothy Leary was around and his uh, slogan of dropping out seemed perfect. We seemed to be doing a lot of hard work and it was about time to drop out. We turned the boutique into a tea house. The tea house became a melting point for travelers that came as far east as Afghanistan, Nepal, bringing hash. And we used to get American Vietnam dropouts. Uh, a couple of them even brought some LSDs. Uh, the police didn't like what was going on in the tea house. So they decided to close us down. <laughs> and so we hitchhiked to India, my daughter. <laughs> so now you're you're on your way. Um, how old are you now? You're you're in, still in your you're in your twenties, right? Ah, uh, I was to be in 24, 23, 24. 24. Okay, so so you're a, a single mom traveling to India, going through some very rough areas, some very um, uh, amazing areas. areas. And, and this was the beginning of your adventure, wasn't it? Yes, it was in a way. Uh, it was the beginning of me traveling. And once I got to India, I ended up staying there for 14 years. One of my children was born there. And uh, it was a beautiful, very natural, organic place to bring up kids. And I loved it. 
And, it, and, and I think in some of our discussions before you said, for the most part, it was very safe. And, you know, for me, I would have, I would have thought during that time frame, you know, it was necessarily a great spot to be, a, you know, a young woman on your own out there, you know, surviving, trying to make survive for your kids. Uh, I wasn't always on my own. <laughs> I was married at some point. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which lasted about seven years. But anyway, um, no, I, I always felt safe, even if I, in Afghanistan, where everybody walked around with a Kalashnikov or something. In the end, it was just like over here, businessmen walk around with a briefcase. And it was never scary. It was a great atmosphere. And the Afghanis were very welcoming towards us. I always thought it came because we all smoked a hookah pipe. Maybe it was, but uh, it was a fantastic country in the old days. This was long before the Russians or the Americans got there. Yeah. And you really learned uh, the trade, the, the, the hashish trade, while you were there. And learned the traditions and uh, and got involved in some of the uh, religions and such while you were there in order to to learn. Um, did you have a person or someone that really led you along that part of the journey, or was this a collective amount of, you know, just years and years and years of experiences? Yeah, it's just years of experiences in different countries. I saw it being made uh, up in Milana. We actually helped, and, and uh, Manali, we actually helped the rubbing because there they make charas, which is just someone rubs the flowers and then rubs off the hash that's stuck to their hands. And we did that a lot. Even my youngest, my oldest daughter was doing it when she was little. <laughs> really getting to the root of the scenario, yes. Was, there, was it a big business there? I mean, uh, I, we, you know. It was never really a business. I just rubbed for private use. And later, sometimes I would send back some parcels to Holland to help out finance this whole gang that was growing. I now had four kids <laughs> that just insisted on having three meals a day. <laughs> so you better make sure that uh, that's available. Absolutely. There was, a, a, you know, we, we've had a couple of conversations in the past and, you know, you were literally there at the front lines of the, where the best of the best of the best was, you know, the original land race, the original goodies. And uh, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'd like you to answer the question again, just because I love your answer. Um, what's the best hash you've ever smoked? It's one right here. <laughs> All the other joints are future dreams and past memories, but this is the one that's happening now, so it must be the best for now anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. And I've, I've tried to take that a little bit more into my own, because I get asked the same thing. So what's the best bud? What's the best one you've ever smoked? And I'm, I've, I'm starting to follow your... Uh, your guidance there. I, I'm curious um, because you've had a chance to see some things that I, I've actually had a dream about one of the stories you told me about. 
And you, you told me a story once about going into the Himalayas and, and seeing something that was very special. Can you tell our viewers that little story? Because it's, I still think about it and the possibilities if we could have ever got a hold of that now. <laughs> yeah, about at that time, it was uh, 69, these sadhus, which are the Indian holy men, they wear their hair and uh, uh, knotted on their heads. They smoke chillums from morning to night, mainly in honor and reverence to their Lord Shiva, who is one of the gods of destruction in the Indian uh, mythological system. And I think it's maybe the destruction of your ego and things like that. Um, anyway, they wanted to show us some really good plants where they like to get the hash from. So we left the valley where the plants were growing six, seven yards high. They didn't respect those plants very much. And we climbed and climbed and climbed till we got about at the tree line. And then there was this kind of dell that in the winter time had been covered with snow. So the marijuana plants that had survived looked more like bonsai plants, all scraggly and with branches going in every direction and lots of buds, each of them quite small compared to the buds from down in the valley. But they said that this was it. It was a second year plant and uh, we rubbed those little buds and we took it off and we immediately put it in a chillum and smoked it all together. Uh, now I realize when you smoke anything that fresh, it still contains cannabinoids that very quickly disappear and terpenes that maybe evaporate. But the effect was just amazing. I can only compare it a bit like with an acid trip that the sound of the brook going along the path was just so magical and the colors were so vibrant and everything. Yeah, that was probably my best experience. <laughs> I've had many. And I must say, this answer that this joint is the best is also because I wouldn't really know. Every time I come to the States, there's at least a hundred new varieties of weed and therefore of hash. And I can't possibly keep up to try them all to see which one I really like the best. So <laughs> it's also yeah. what was the name of the city? It was that uh, where where you said you found the 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 real premium uh, hash when you first arrived. Mazari Sharif. That's in Mazari Sharif. Yeah, Mazari Sharif is in the north of Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and what what about that particular hash? What about that cultivar? still separates itself from everything else since? Uh, actually, right over there, I've got a book lying and it's got a picture of exactly what I mean. I'm going to hold it up and hold it in front of the camera and maybe you can see. <laughs> Fantastic. Seeing is believing. Now I have to find these two amazing pictures. Yeah, there you go. See that one? That's Afghani hash as I remember it. And flavor-wise, what kind of 
flavor are you pulling off of something like that? Is it? I think if my memory serves me well, which it doesn't always, that it was a bit flowery and uh, sweet. Yeah. It certainly didn't have anything resembling a diesel taste in there. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you, you like edibles? Uh, to a certain extent, I'm not very fond of them. During the day, I just fall asleep, and at night, I wish I would. <laughs> there you go. And and obviously, uh, you are a fan of, of the dabs, and for the people in the United States that may not have seen, she is the creator, founder of the, uh, the Dabadoo events. And uh, they started, what was the first year of your first Dabadoo? That was in 2013, and it was for my 69th birthday, and I wanted to do something special. And I'd been to a chalice, and there they did something similar. But I decided to just do it for hash, seeing as I don't even really like wheat that much. And I thought up the name Dabadoo, so then we had a name. And yeah, so we did it. And it was just going to be a one-time thing only, just for my birthday. But everybody liked it so much that four months later, we had one in Barcelona. Uh, now, recently, we had one in Barcelona, and that was number 28. And how many entrants did you have uh, this year? 22. And for the first time, we had a ladies category for female hash makers. And that was quite popular and got some excellent, very good results. Even some of the judges, the men said, whoa, those lady hashes were really superb. So that's good. I think we'll keep that in. Are there not a lot of ladies competitions just for women? Not as far as I'm aware of. I've been led to believe it was like at the high times, they never have an entry for ladies. Uh, I don't really know any cops that have entries for ladies. You might have just broken through another barrier right there, opened up your first category. That's uh, that, that's fantastic. Another wall. You know, speaking of barriers and and talking about uh, uh, you know knocking down walls. Uh, if I recall correctly, um, you are listed as one of the top one hundred of the most influential people in cannabis. And that was a High Times Magazine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, no, there was no differentiation about women in cannabis or anything. That was most influential in the whole ball game there, right? <laughs> I got the 50 most influential women. So I'm in both of those, yeah. There you go. Yeah, you know what? But I think legacy is important. You, you know, you have set uh, the bar here, and you know what you did, and you know, and what you persevered through um, in uh, all of these wonderful little adventures you did, and then came back, and it's the most brilliant invention. And since that time, I mean, you've sold them in just about every country in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Just about, even in countries where it's totally illegal to grow. And people <laughs> my equipment to make hash. So that kind of belies the fact that people are growing there. <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating. I was, uh, in, I, I was in Hawaii one time in a very remote part of Kauai. 
and uh, went into a, a guy's uh, backyard and he had your, uh, your uh, isolator bags all set up in the backyard. Uh, I was in a yard in Jamaica and saw uh, your, uh, your isolator or no, the uh, pollinator was there and they were, they had a, the, that was cranking. Unbelievable. So, I mean, there's, 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 uh, and if I remember correctly, you don't, you have a map inside your office now or in the, uh, it, it's turned into a museum, correct? Yes. Uh, during Corona, we had not much to do and uh, I had this extra space. So I decided to turn it into a small museum and we had months to sort out through all the thousands of photographs, which to hang up on the walls. And now it's actually turned out into a very nice little hangout spot. Alas, the Wi-Fi isn't very good over there. That's why we're now sitting over here in my office. But anyway, <laughs> it's a nice place to be. I've got a couple of photos I'll be adding on to our video here. I, one of my things that I loved the most was your, your, you have a whole giant picture just of all of your passes from all of the different events you've been to. Do you have any idea how many events you've been to? No, but I only know the actual amount of passes that I have is probably about 20% of the total I could have had if I'd really been seriously collecting them. <laughs> Do you have one event or one experience from any of these events that you would have said is, oh my God, that was that year, that that place? Is there one that stands out among all the rest of them? I know the first one in uh, Colombia, the guys had rented the helicopter and that was pretty amazing. I'd never been in a helicopter. And there we were flying over the jungles and uh, going to this place for the Dabidu. But the really nice thing was that the guys had rented the helicopter for the whole day. So out of all the people coming for the Dabidu, many, many of them took a little ride up for five minutes, had a talk on high and <laughs> came down again. That was so amazing. Yeah, that was wow. really nice. Now, you had mentioned before about uh, uh, the, the, some of the Dabidus and while you were in uh, Barcelona, uh, uh, something that was going on with the, the, your, the Dabadu folks down in South America. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, this time uh, to uh, all the guys who'd organized uh, Dabadu in 2019 actually came to the Dabadu, this one here in Barcelona. So we sat all together and planned a whole tour that didn't have me flying around from top to bottom, left to right the whole time. And I'm very happy with it. And we put the dates and everybody's happy with that so far. I plan to stay in each country nine or 10 days. I can't imagine just going every three, four days to another place. This way, I have a couple of days to help out, uh, prepare the Dabadu, and then hopefully have a week at the end of it that we can see some nice parts of the country. I'm not interested in cities, but... Uh, go to a beach or go to some jungle, whatever, yeah. How many Dabadoos are there scheduled for, for 2022? Seven in South America. And then depending on the fit I am at the end of it, I might call it quits and go back home, but it ends the end of November. So there is the Emerald Cup kind of lurking up there far in the north. I might go by the 
maybe I'll just skip it this year. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to to uh, um, talk about or to express to you also was, uh, you know, some observations that I had from Spanibus. And uh, this is something that I, I just, it was my observation because I had an opportunity. Again, I'm, I'm going all around Spanibus looking for the best things and the coolest people and the greatest uh, products. I ended up coming around your booth probably about 20 or 30 times during the course of uh, the, the experience. I have to say, you're the hardest working lady I've seen in the business. I've never seen so many happy people thrilled to see you. It's like they're coming to, they're, they're seeing a, a long lost uh, relative that they haven't seen forever and ever. And you are the kindest, sweetest lady to all of them. And uh, I, I, I even, I think one of the ladies we saw one of the time was in tears when she had an opportunity to sit there and, and spend some time with you. How many people do you think you ended up seeing over the three days there? Well over a thousand, I would imagine. All the jumping up to take selfies with them. <laughs> there wasn't just one, there was about eight or nine people that kind of burst into tears when they got close to me. So all I could think of to do was just to give them big hugs. And <laughs> Everyone was so in love and so happy to see each other. And to... I seen each other for like two years. So yeah, there was a lot of old friends to catch up with and greet and yeah. And it was the first time that I could sell the Spanish book. So for many Spanish people, it was their first opportunity to get one. Now, the, there's there's a lot of, you know, and, and this is not my expertise. Again, I grew up in California where, you know, if we got a, a, a rock of hash, it was, it was a surprise. And if we got a rock of hash, we didn't know what to do with it. Um, so we usually found a pin or something that had a, a, and stuck it on top of there and stuck a glass on it and then hit it on the side of a table. That was the only way we ever smoked hash. Uh, so our education for such a long time, for my education, didn't really start to uh, grow until I got to Amsterdam. And then, of course, it's everywhere in Amsterdam. And what was surprising to me was how everyone was smoking it, because nobody was smoking it on a pin with the cup like I was. Everyone was breaking it up and smoking it with a little bit of tobacco. Do you, I, that's, is that the way that you've uh, always smoked it? I first started smoking in late 64, early 65, and there was no weed available in the whole city. Nobody would ever heard of weed to smoke, but you could get hash and it would be in the neighborhood of some uh, bars around the harbor and sailors would have brought it from Turkey, from Iran, from Pakistan. Done maybe from different African countries, I'm not sure. But they used to sell it then by the matchbox full. And that's what my boyfriend of that time got me, a matchbox full. He was studying medicine and he wanted to see the effects of, of smoking hash on someone. So we rolled a joint and I smoked it and I immediately... I landed up on the ground with my legs in the air, laughing and laughing, rolling from left to right and right to left. And I think it was immediately I was hooked by the, with the first toke. 
And how much I how mean, much was it a gram back then? I can't remember exactly. I think it was maybe 25 guilders or maybe less even for a matchbox full. But a matchbox would have held maybe 30, 40 grams. But I do remember the price in Afghanistan when I was on the Khyber Pass. You could buy Afghani hash and it was $20 a kilo. Yeah. I spent all my last money buying a few kilo. <laughs> a kilo. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Those are the good old days. Yeah, that was 68. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time with me. I, I I love you and everything that you do. Okay, love you lots. And thank you. Love you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. And we'll see you soon. Yeah, thank you and love you. Wow, what a fantastic interview. Isn't she wonderful? Don't forget, you can pick up a copy of her book, How I Became the Hash Queen, at Amazon.com. That leads us perfectly into our next segment. Some cool stuff I found. Since we've been talking about the Hash Queen, check out this really amazing little pipe. It's made by the Hash Corporation, and it's called the Hash Kettle. All you have to do is pinch off a piece of hash, twist it up around the glass bar, spark that bad boy up, and let the kettle do her work. This works just like a port pipe. Man, this looks cool. If you like this hash kettle, follow them on Instagram and you can get on the waiting list. These are super popular. This is called the deodor. What they do is they use terpenes to neutralize the smoke rather than to cover it up. I had a firsthand experience using this product and it saved my ass. So when I saw the same guys with this product at Spanibus, I grabbed a bottle right away. Jump on over to their website. It's brand new. Sign up and they'll send you a bottle for free. How cool is that? And now it's time for the Worldwide Bud Report. Hit it! Planet 13. I'm a bud tender here. I have my Oreo strain here by Medicine. Love this one a lot. What I like about this hybrid, it's a great cerebral buzz. The more you smoke, the better you feel. This terpene content is going to have some perio for that nice gassy taste. And of course, I'm going to have some humulene and a little bit of mercy to help chill you out there. Oreos is dusted with trichomes, and I love this one a lot. It's Danny again. Hey, Cap. Thanks again for having me. Um, so the next strain I kind of want to talk to you guys about is one that I'm actually pretty a big fan of. Uh, it's called Super Lemon Haze by Modang. This is another Missouri brand that I'm totally digging right now. Um, if you don't know, Super Lemon Haze is actually a cross between Lemon Skunk and Super Silver Haze, uh, both of which are excellent strains on their own. Um, if you haven't tried them, once again, definitely give it a look-see. Um, great thing about this strain, um, it definitely smells citrusy. It definitely smells tart, kind of like what you would expect for anything with the word lemon in it. Um, I'm really a big fan of... Uh, Basically, the effects of this strain tends to have, tends to make you feel uplifted, a little bit energetic, might give you a little bit of a focus as well. Um, the great thing um, about Super Lemon Haze on top of that is the top terpenes in this strain. First one's going to be terpenaline. The second one is going to be beta-caryophylline. I, I don't know. I can smell. You want to? Yeah. I just, it's nice. This is a good, this is a good, good daytime smoke, really good anytime smoke, good for focus. Um, 
and a highly recommended strain. If you ever come across it in any dispensary, highly suggest you pick it up. Um, anyway, thanks again for having me. Have a great day. Hey, hello to all beautiful 420 people around the world. I'm Austin and I greet you from Sol Sunny, Costa del Sol, Spain. Today I'm going to tell you about a strain in a local cannabis social club in the Benambadena. It's called Glue Monster. It's locally grown, probably not commercially available genetics, but nonetheless, it's worth talking about. The strain combines Gorilla Glue, glue Genetics and the secret male donor. It hasn't been well cured since while vaping, there was no harshness. The taste is sweeter and a touch of floral notes on exhale. It is a good daytime smoke, which lifts you up and energizes like a coffee. For me, the ride was calming and energizing at the same time. It felt relaxed, but still could remain in working mode. And that is why I like this train. It's really nice daytime smoke to enjoy while working outside, enjoying the sun on your face. That's all from me now. See you soon. Hey everybody, it's Chef Danny Raposo, the stoner chef. Uh, today on the Worldwide Bud Report, I'm smoking some Subway Scientist. And it is... Uh, called Grand Daddy Perps. It's an indica and it's 24.5% THC. It's got a very nice taste to it. Not so easily, uh, a little sweet, um, and it's not raunchy or rough. So it goes down smooth. Very nice bud. So, uh, yeah, I can't wait to, uh, break it down into uh, some edibles and see how that works out. Uh, so here, I'll flip this around again. It is, there you go, 24.87, and it's Subway Scientists, and it is Granddaddy Perps, the strain, and look at that strain. Wow, isn't it beautiful? It's got some beautiful hairs in it, some orangey, uh, and it's got some nice crystals to it. Once again, very nice to smoke. Uh, I give it about an 8 out of 10. And that is nice. So, this is what I'm smoking this week for my Worldwide Bud Report. Have a great day. Follow me. The link is below. <laughs> Thank you for listening. gang that's our show for today peace and love everyone see you next time It's Captain Hooter!